Today's scripture reading is from Acts 1, 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The word of the Lord. It is uh, January, which means we are officially in the season of self-reliance if you know what I'm talking about, right? It's January 6th. It's the first weekend of the new year. And if you are like most people, you have been better this week, right? Maybe you've worked out a few more times. Maybe you've read the Bible a little bit more. Maybe you've uh, watched less TV or, or you're finally sticking to a budget. And if that describes you, uh, don't worry, you're not alone. I'm a, I'm a sucker for New Year's resolutions myself. I, those weren't just abstract examples. I'm doing all of them. <laughs> this is the week, right? This is the time. It's time to buckle down. It's time to, to try harder. Now, I say this week and not this year because this isn't my first time around, <laughs> right? And I'm assuming that this year is, is going to go just like every other year. And eventually... All of our good intentions are going to wear out. Eventually, uh, we're going to come to face-to-face with, with our weakness, face-to-face with our inability to really change ourselves. But I'm not saying that to discourage you, okay? Don't, don't let that discourage you, because actually, I think that the book of Acts brings us some hope this morning. I'm really excited, actually, that we're going to start this book and that we're going to study it, because this book is good news for people who can't change themselves. This book is good news for people who are powerless, people who are weak. If you've ever found yourself in that place where you just feel like you're all alone, where you feel like everything is up to you, that you aren't quite strong enough to do it, well, the book of Acts comes with a powerful truth. It says you are weak, but you're not alone. You're not alone because Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God. Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God. I'm really looking forward to studying that because I think that is a message that we desperately need to hear and not just to hear, but we need to believe it. And so today, that's my goal. My goal is that we would kick off the book of Acts, look at these major themes, and I hope that we will see those two realities. One, that Jesus is alive. Two, that his spirit empowers the people of God. And my hope is that as we hear those things, we will be led to respond. That we'll respond by surrendering to his power and giving up on our own strength. So that's the outline. Jesus is alive. His spirit empowers the people of God, and we're supposed to respond to it. John Michael, would you turn me down just a hair? Um, Here we go. Jesus is alive. Okay, let's look at our passage, Acts chapter 1. Open up your Bibles if you have them. We're going to look at them. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So, starting out in Acts, we learn one thing right off the bat. This is a sequel. He says, I wrote a first book, this is the second book. It's written by Luke, if you don't know, it's the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. This book is addressed to the same person the Gospel of Luke was addressed to. It's this guy named Theophilus. We don't know very much about Theophilus, except for uh, he was probably a person of some renown in the community, and he's the person that Luke had in mind when he was writing both of these books. Um, but that's not really the most important thing we learn in this first verse. The most important words in verse 1 are, began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. I want you guys to get that in your head. Everybody repeat that. Began to do and teach. Do you realize that those words set the Christian faith apart from every other religion, every other movement that has ever existed in history? Do you realize that? Because when Luke, when he says began, what he's telling us is that Jesus, in his 33 years on earth, that was not the end of his ministry. He is still doing and teaching. That first book, that was just the beginning. He is still alive. He is still at work. He is still doing and teaching. And not only that, because he said the things that he, he, he began to do and to teach, he's also pointing out that what matters to us, what matters to Christians, what matters to the church, is not only what Jesus taught, but also what he did. That means that unlike the Buddha, unlike the prophet Muhammad, unlike L. Ron Hubbard from Scientology, or even unlike some Christian teachers, unlike Paul, or unlike Peter, what matters about Jesus is not just the things that he taught. His major impact was not simply uh, a collection of sayings that he wrote down and that have been passed along to us. His teaching matters because of who he is and because of what he has done. And not only that, because of what he continues to do. Now Luke, he's already written a whole other book. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in that Gospel, he showed us that Jesus was not just a good teacher. He showed us that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. That he died on the cross for the sins of the world. That he rose from the dead after three days for the redemption of the world. That he ascended into heaven and that now he is ruling and he is reigning actively at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, if you happen to be a sane and reasonable person here this morning, and you're hearing me say that, if you're processing that information, right, that Jesus, a man, was also God, that Jesus died, but he rose again and he's still living, at least part of you has to be thinking, that's not possible. At least part of you have to be thinking, that, that does sound a little crazy when you put it that way. And you're right. It does sound kind of crazy. It is hard to believe. That's why 
as we start out this book, Luke keeps going. He says, in the first book, I talked about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then it says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke says, after Jesus rose from the dead, he kept appearing to the apostles for this period of 40 days, and he gave them many proofs. Why do you think he says many proofs? Why do you think he uses that word? Well, it's because of us. It's because of Theophilus, who he wrote this book to. It's because of the people who had received this book and read it. It's because it's hard to believe. And it always has been hard to believe. It requires some proof, those kinds of claims. Everybody who has ever lived in the world knows that when people die, they don't come back to life. When people die, they're dead. And sometimes you might hear some critical people talking about the Bible and they might say something like, yeah, well, back then things were different. You know, it was, it, was a, it was a pre-scientific age. Back then, the world was more mystical. It seemed more magical. Back then, people were more likely to be fooled by something like this. People were more likely to think that someone could come back from the dead. Have you ever heard that before? Well, if you've heard that argument, I just want to say, it's not true. Back then, people didn't come back from the dead either. <laughs> and everybody knew it, just like they know it now. In the end of the Gospel of Luke. He says that after Mary and the other women at the tomb witnessed the resurrection, it says they came to tell the apostles about it. Luke chapter 24, the same author, here's what he writes. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with the apostles who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. The apostles themselves, when they first heard this, they didn't believe it. Even though they had spent their lives alongside of Jesus, who constantly said that he was going to suffer and die, and after the third day, be raised from the dead. But what we find out is over the course of the next 40 days, Jesus proved it to them beyond the shadow of a doubt. In fact, the response to the resurrection is overwhelming. The response to the resurrection is unlike anything anyone has ever seen in all of human history. Even the most skeptical scholars have to admit that within a very small window of time, whatever it was that took place, the people who followed Jesus stopped calling him rabbi and started calling him the Son of God. The resurrected Son of God. And their evidence for that was so credible that it spread through the world like wildfire. And the fact of it was so important to them that they were willing to die for the truth rather than to deny what they knew was the fact. So just don't believe the case that these were a bunch of gullible people in some old culture that were likely to be tricked into believing a lie. That's not true. 
I, uh, over the break, uh, watched this movie, a kid's movie. It's a cartoon called Smallfoot. I don't think it was very popular. Did anybody see this movie? Maybe some parents suffered through it. I don't know. It's okay. I'm not recommending it. But the plot of this movie, it's about these, this, this community of, of Bigfoots, <laughs> Sasquatches, that live in this tiny, isolated, mountaintop village. And they follow this weird Bigfoot religion. And they have a town elder who is draped with these little tablets. And the tablets tell them everything they're supposed to know. It tells them how the world was formed. It tells them what their purpose is on earth. And it tells them that there is no such thing as human beings, or as they call them in the movie, small feet, right? And then one day, one of the Bigfoots discovers a small foot. And everything is called into question. He realizes that, that these things do exist, and so he starts to challenge their Bigfoot religion. He starts to question it, and pretty soon, like dominoes, everything falls apart because it's not true. And as I was picking up on these themes, watching this movie with my kids, I started Googling, reading some of the reviews, and I found that there were a lot of Christians who were mad about this movie. They were like, this movie is anti-Christian. And I was really, I was kind of surprised to see that. Because the movie isn't anti-Christian. The movie is, is anti-deception. The movie, in fact, I would argue is, is helpful for Christians. Because our faith is not like the faith of the, the Sasquatches in the cartoon, right? Our faith is a faith that can stand some questioning. Our faith is a faith that comes with many proofs. And in fact, that's what Luke is doing here in this book by starting out this way. He's encouraging you, if you've got questions... Ask him. You don't have to be afraid. God can handle it, and he can answer them for you. By mentioning these many proofs, Luke is reminding us that our faith is strong because it's grounded in, in reality. It's grounded in history. It's grounded in irrefutable proof. So I want to say, if you've got questions, ask him. Don't bury them. Bring them up. Let me know what they are. Maybe I'll, I can help you find some reasonable responses to them. Because here's what I want to tell you. Here's what Luke wants to tell you. Jesus lives. He really does. You can actually believe this. Not only are there eyewitnesses that attest to it in Scripture, but there is also this. There is the living church, a community of people that has spread across the world who know Jesus personally, who have encountered Christ and know Him as their Savior. So that's the first theme of this book. Jesus is alive. You can believe it. The second theme in the book is that the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God. The Holy Spirit empowers the people of God. Our faith, the story of our faith that we kind of live through every year is a, a three-act play. On the one hand, you have the birth of Christ, the Incarnation, then you have the resurrection, and then you have Pentecost. Those three moments in the Christian faith are what everything else is focused around. And it's interesting, right? Because every year, we spend a lot of time getting ready to celebrate the incarnation, right? At Christmas, we spend weeks getting prepared. 
And then when we get to celebrate the resurrection, we get ready. We have Palm Sunday at the very least. Sometimes we, we celebrate Lent. You know, it's a time of 40 days leading up to it. We always know when those two days are. But Pentecost, when's that? It's on the church calendar, but it kind of just blows by. Sometimes it's on Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> we don't know. I was, a friend of mine said that if he were the devil, he would, really, he would prefer it this way. He thinks it's a great thing that everybody gets so focused on Christmas and Easter that they forget about Pentecost. Because Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's arrival, that's the only way we can make any sense of Christmas and Easter. Without the Spirit, the rest of that stuff is just dead religion. Without the Spirit helping us to apprehend it, making it come alive in our hearts, Christmas and Easter are just holidays. So, the Holy Spirit's important for us to understand. We need to know who He is because He is the one that makes the gospel work in us. The, the name of the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice in these first five verses. First, Luke tells us that Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what that means. Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit. We are a, a Trinitarian faith. We have one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And a lot of times, uh, we talk about the Father in church. A lot of times, we talk about the Son in church, and we talk about how the two of them relate to each other. We think about it a lot. John chapter 10, verse 30, it says, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We know that. But I'm not so sure that we consider the Holy Spirit nearly as much. But do you know Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is just as intimately connected with Jesus as God the Father is? Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit was the one empowering the ministry, the life, the death, the birth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson is a Scottish pastor. He wrote this book called The Holy Spirit. And he summarizes just a few of the places in Scripture that give us uh, that teaching. He says, it's the Holy Spirit who is present at Jesus' baptism. Do you remember the story? John chapter 1, John the Baptist says that he saw the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove in that moment. That was the sign that he was the Messiah. It was the Holy Spirit that directed Jesus to go into the wilderness and be tempted by Satan. Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was the Spirit who empowered Jesus in his miracles. When he was refuting the Pharisees, he says that it's by the power of God that he casts out demons. It's the Spirit who energized Jesus in his sacrifice on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9, it says, who, Jesus, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. And we find that it's the Spirit who vindicated Jesus in His resurrection. First Timothy, he was, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Romans chapter 1, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Okay, so why is that important? Why does that matter? Why do I spend time wandering through all those verses this morning? Well, because... 
Luke wants you to know that that same Spirit is promised to the people of God. Jesus says, it says, and while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, you heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the second time the Holy Spirit comes up in this passage. Jesus tells them to wait for the promise of the Father. Does anybody remember that speech that Jesus gives in in John when he's talking about the Holy Spirit? John chapter 16. It's a long uh, passage. He describes what the Spirit will do. In that speech, he says, it's for your good that I'm leaving. It's for your good that I'm going away. Now, we cannot possibly understand that unless we have a robust personal knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, it's for your good that I'm going away. But we say, how is it for our good? How is it possibly good news for us that Jesus is not somewhere where we can see him and and grab a hold of him, where we can say that he's over there and go talk to him? How is it possibly good news for us that he has gone away? Well, it's because of what Paul says in Romans. It says, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. That same Holy Spirit who was with Jesus at all of those different points in His ministry that I just ran through, that same Spirit that personally knows the heart of Jesus has been promised to the people of God. That's kind of crazy. Think about that. God Himself is now dwelling in and empowering you. He is our power. Now we're going to get more into that. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit a lot over the next few weeks. But for now, I just want let me quickly break down what that means. Because maybe you're asking, what are you talking about? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is our power? Well, well, here's some things that Scripture tells us that means. It means that if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is our helper. He is our constant source of strength to fight against sin, to resist temptation. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. He's our advocate. He's the one who speaks the truth to our hearts when the devil would tell us lies. He's the one who tells us that we're not condemned even though we fall. He's the voice of God in our hearts that convicts us of our sin that makes us cry out in repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of our adoption. That means that His presence in our life, the conviction, the desire to know God is a constant reminder that we belong to God. It's a spirit inside of us that cries out, Abba, Father, that reminds us that we are His, that we have been adopted into His family. His Spirit, it really is the power behind all of the Christian life. He makes us alive in Christ instead of being dead in our trespasses. Without the Spirit, we can't do a single thing. We can't even respond to God. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And so that's why 
in these first few verses, in the very beginning of this book, Christ's major command to the apostles is a simple one. Wait. If anybody's read Luke recently, you you might remember that at the end of the book, Jesus tells them what they're going to do for Him. He says that they have to go and, and preach the Gospel to the ends of the earth. But here, at the beginning of Acts, He says, wait. Don't do it yet. He says, stay here. Don't try to do that on your own. Wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. That word, wait, that word is a blessing to me today. And I hope that it'll become a blessing to you right now because it is a reminder that the task of building the church is not up to us. It's not about self-reliance. It's not about New Year's resolutions to be a better evangelist. That word wait, it also means that the task of becoming holy is not something that you can accomplish in yourself just by trying harder. When Jesus says, wait, he's saying, this is my mission. My mission to bring the kingdom of God in your heart. To bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. To see every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping together before my throne. To see my church made perfect in holiness. He says, that is not a job that I am asking you to do for me. But that is something I plan to do by my power working in you. He says, that's not a job I want you to do for me. That's something I plan to do in you. I said a minute ago that the thing that separates Christianity from every other religion is that Jesus is alive. But that's only part of the story. The resurrected Jesus, he isn't just alive. He's not just off somewhere being alive. It says that the people of God are empowered by the Spirit of God. That the people of God are never alone. His Spirit dwells in us. He empowers us. He sustains us. He transforms us into His likeness. That's the second theme of this book. That's something we need to see. And the third theme that we'll find here this morning and that we're going to see all throughout this book is that these are not merely objective facts. We must respond. Whether you are Theophilus reading the book, whether you are the people standing in the crowd at Pentecost or in Athens as Paul preaches, or whether you are the church today, everybody who hears this message has to respond. The news of the living Christ, the news that His Spirit is active, that it empowers His people, it requires something of us. When Jesus told His disciples to wait for the Spirit before going out on this mission to reach the ends of the earth, they had a choice to make. Right? When He says wait, their choice was, are you going to do this on your own? Are you going to try to go it alone? Or will you surrender? Will you surrender to me? Will you surrender to my will and my plan? 
Will you receive my spirit? Would they try to make things happen in their own timing? Or would they give their ambitions to Jesus? And that's the choice that's in front of you today. That's the same choice that's in front of me this morning. When Jesus says, wait for His Spirit, He's saying the opposite of our New Year's resolutions. He's saying that instead of this year just trying to to dig deeper and look inside and find what you've been lacking, instead of trying to grit your teeth and do it on your own, He's saying, give up on yourself. He's saying, stop. He's saying, surrender your ambitions to mine. He's calling us to give away the control of our lives to him. He's calling us once again to come and follow him. And you know what? That's that's really scary. If you understand what that means, that is extremely terrifying. Surrendering our life, giving control of everything away to Jesus? Look, I'm being honest with you guys. This is hard for me. I really struggle with this. This isn't something that I can get up and tell you how to do it perfectly. I am definitely a person who has learned this lesson the hard way. And I've learned it a lot. And I can tell you that with a fair degree of certainty that the reason why you are joyless today, the reason why you're anxious today, the reason why you are are fearful and lonely in the church is because you are holding too tightly to the control of your life. We are a people who we're afraid to surrender. We're afraid of what might happen. We think that if we really were to let God take the the honest lead in our lives, then it's going to be too costly. That it's going to be too painful. That that surely He's going to call us to something awful. (laughs) We can't possibly risk that. I sometimes feel like we are a congregation of people who have professed faith. We said we're going to surrender. And we come to God with this, this theology that we, we do surrender, that we give our lives to Him, but we want to take a carry-on bag with us. You know what I mean? Like we have this little, little suitcase next to us, and we say, Lord, I surrender, but in here, there's just a few things I want to take with me. <laughs> and inside this little bag, we've, we've stuffed it full of things that, that we just want to keep under our own control. Maybe it's our career ambitions. Maybe it's our personal finances and and how we spend our money. Maybe it's our addictions. Maybe it's a personal grudge that we're just not ready to let go of. Maybe it's a relationship we, we probably shouldn't be in. But we know whatever's in here, whatever's in here for you, we don't want Jesus getting a hold of this bag. These things are our things. We've got plans for these things. We can't surrender them to anybody. And so we cling to it. 
Because we think that, that losing this stuff is going to mean death. But I want to tell you that this morning, Jesus is telling you the same thing he told those disciples. He's saying that as long as we are living in our own strength, we are dead and we are dying. Folks, this morning, we need to let the Spirit sweep in. We need to let the living Christ take control. And that's only going to happen if you let go. If you repent of those things that you're holding on to so tightly. If you repent of that self-reliance and then receive His power. And you know what? This is maybe the good news, but it might be the bad news too. Jesus is alive. Our Holy Spirit, He is powerful. Our God is faithful. And you know, I can tell you with, with 100% confidence, and again, too much personal experience, that if Jesus wants that bag, He'll have it. If Jesus wants those things that you're holding on to, He will take them. Now, He might have to forcefully rip that bag out of your hands. He might have to break you down so much that you just can't hold on anymore. But he'll get it. And here's the other thing I can tell you. Eventually, when that happens, when you repent, when you finally surrender to Jesus and let him take control, joy is what will follow. Peace. That's what you're going to have. Whatever it is that you're afraid of, whatever it is that you most fear, you're going to find out those things don't have any power over you anymore. Instead, what you're going to have in the place is hope. You're going to have salvation. You're going to have life itself. And that's the point here, guys. The gospel message has at its heart this tremendous gift. A gift that is greater than anything else, any earthly ambition, anything that you could possibly put inside of this little bag. The gospel has at its heart Christ himself. The living Savior whose, whose kingdom is coming, whose rule and reign is breaking into our hearts and into this world right now. The gospel has at its heart the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who assures us that we belong to Him and that we will be with Him in glory. It's a fact. It's a sure thing. And so that's the message of this book. Jesus lives. His Spirit has come. And he invites us this morning to respond and surrender. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Sometimes we think we don't need that much of you. We fear that if we were to, to give all of ourselves to you, it would be too much. If we were to really lose control of ourselves, we'd fall to pieces. But Lord, what you show us here is we already have fallen to pieces. We need you to put us back together. Lord, would you make us a people who are empowered? Would you send your spirit to sweep through the dark corners of our hearts and our minds till there's nothing left but you? Father, forgive us for our rebellion. Forgive us for our unbelief. 
Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who doesn't know you, who's never invited you in, who's never let go of anything. Lord, would they come to you this morning in repentance? Would they come to you and, and call you their Savior, and would you make them your own? Lord, I pray for all of us who've lived this week as rebels. Lord, would we know you in a real, personal, living way right now? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.